and uh, that day it didn't feel very well with me, but I know that she's with her Savior, and I know that she is watching down on me and saying, it's okay, it is well. Pray with me, would you please? Father, thank you for sharing sweet testimony and for a Mother's Independence Day who suffered so long upon this earth to be in your presence, Lord, to know your face from being face to face. God, I pray that through all the tribulations we find in this world, all the turbulences, that you might still that inside part of us, that we might be still and know that you are God, that you are reigning and you're ruling and you're over all. God, do great works in us that we might testify to this world the peace that Christ has done in us. We pray in his name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. You have a Bible and open up to Acts chapter 2 and verse number 38. We'll be there in just a minute. I know of a young man <clears throat> who was very, very lost. He was on a college campus, kind of like Big Mike, you know, living hard, you know, working hard, partying hard, partly to study, mostly to have a good time. But at some point in his life, he began to see the barrenness of his life. He began to see the emptiness of his lifestyle. However, there was a roommate who really knew the Lord, and so the roommate and he built a close relationship with one another, you know, hanging out, playing sports, drinking coffee, having meals together. And uh, this guy saw the reality of God in his friend's life because he was full of joy. So his friend witnessed to him, and um, <clears throat> sharing with him the gospel, he had a pamphlet with him uh, explaining the good news of Jesus Christ and had a prayer on the last uh, part of the pamphlet, kind of outlined in bold. And he kind of walked him through, you know, phrase by phrase in that prayer. And the man prayed the sinner's prayer. And he came um, to become born again, born into kingdom. But like a baby that doesn't get much attention when they're born, so he didn't get much uh, attention in his new birth as a Christian. But he did learn that Christians were supposed to go to church. So he began to uh, attend church. By the time he was about 40 years old, he had been in church for about 20 years. <clears throat> if you had cornered him, he didn't really know the Bible very well. He, he never really learned the spiritual practice of quiet time before the Lord, of listening to the Lord's voice. He wouldn't have known, for instance, the books of the Bible. He wouldn't have known about Exodus or Revelation. But he really liked sermons. He, he liked to listen to stories and illustrations from the Bible. But if the truth were known, his salvation experience was more like buying a car. Kind of, he knew he needed one. It was important. So he kind of bought in. And he would go through uh, periods in his life of involvement and less involvement. Sometimes he was in church every Sunday. Sometimes he'd miss for a month or two months or three months. Sometimes he'd skip for a whole summer. He was asked once, you know, where were you this summer? And he said, well, I got together with some of my brothers and uh, went to another church. 
Oh, yeah, what other church? Well, we bought a boat, and we went on a lake, and we went water skiing every Sunday. You know, we had fellowship. That was our church to be on the lake. Is that a church? Sounds like to me it's like guys on the lake water skiing together. Or, you know, he said for a little while, you know, we'd have coffee at the coffee shop, you know, kind of drink coffee, do accountability, that kind of stuff. Is that a church? To be at the coffee shop, drinking coffee, doing accountability? Sounds like guys drinking coffee at the coffee shop. You see, there's something beyond the initial experience with Jesus Christ and baptism. There's growth. This church is really all about discipleship because we exist to be his disciples and to make disciples who can live their life and love like Jesus loves. See, there's a real issue in the world today. You know, in America, there's about 360,000 churches, but only about 2% of those churches are growing. Many have become very stagnant. Most are in decline. Most churches today are growing because of transfer growth. People who have been in other churches now are in other larger churches. About 50% of the evangelical church has not seen a conversion or a baptism in the last year. Today, if you stick around the 11 o'clock, you'll see a guy whose name is Ray, who came to church last week with a purple Ravens jersey, number 57. I called him at first Ray 57. Ray uh, received Christ, and this week he's going to be baptized in Jesus' name. But what's happening is that while this younger generation of 16 to 24-year-olds is kind of leaving the church, there's a lot of 20s and 30s and 40s returning to the church. The fastest-growing element in the church today is people turning back to God in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. We have to be concerned that Islam is the fastest-growing religion in the world. Now, that's not to say that Muslims are not being reached for Christ. God is showing up in dreams in places like Iran, and uh, Muslims are coming to Christ. I heard this week of a man who came to America with destruction on his mind, who was involved with a car accident, and the EMT said, we'll take care of you. He was taken to a hospital where the doctor said, I'll take care of you as a believer. And he stayed there for a period of time, and then the doctor actually invited him to his home where he convalesced and healed, even lent him his car. And that Muslim man became a follower of Jesus Christ. You see, Muslims have a spirit of rejection. They have a father wound, if you will. Their father rejected them. And they long to be loved in Jesus' name. The American religion now, if we're being honest to admit, what happens in America is we basically believe that there's no wrongs and everybody gets to go to heaven. There was recently a Barna survey asking this question, are you saved by grace through truth? Is there really a heaven and hell? Is there an absolute right and wrong? And only 51% of the evangelical pastors got those questions right. And one in seven in the church got those answers right. Most believe that we're a product of natural processes, right? Most don't know the difference between the Bible and the Koran. 
What would happen if the church stepped into discipleship to help that young man grow up in his faith? It says in Colossians, you know, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted, built up in the faith, strengthened in the faith, overflowing with thankfulness. So this morning's sermon is really about what's next. What, it, what does it mean to be rooted and built up in Christ and strengthened in the faith? Look with me at Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 where we begin. Peter replied to the question, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You see, Peter was a follower of Jesus. He is the one who is preaching here at a place called Pentecost. Peter was a fisherman. And Peter um, was asked by Jesus to put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Peter was a reluctant disciple of Jesus. <laughs> he said, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. You know, by the way, I'm the professional fisherman. I spent my entire life fishing. I know when and how to catch fish. And aren't you the son of a carpenter, by the way? <laughs> how much do you know about fishing? Peter uh, entered into some agreement and said, okay, I'll let down my nets, not because I think I'm going to catch fish or I think it's a great idea, but because you said so. You see, when Peter stepped into obedience, the blessing of God began to flow into his life. Just like these that have been baptized, they've stepped into obedience and the blessing of God is going to flow into their lives. You see, Jesus had said to Peter, I will build my church, and I will send the Spirit. And now God was building his church at Pentecost. The Spirit came like a mighty wind, like a blazing fire. And Peter was anointed by God with the Holy Spirit. And these, these people that were there said, what shall we do? Their hearts were under conviction. And Peter said to them, first of all, I want you to repent. What do we do when we receive God's grace is we repent. God grants to us the gift of repentance. Somebody said sin is like a sneeze. It feels pretty good, but it leaves behind a big mess. And repentance is a change of my mind. So you're living your life, you're doing your thing, and then the Holy Spirit begins to bring conviction. You realize this is wrong, this is flat out wrong, and your heart begins to change, your perspective begins to change about sin. You don't want to do this anymore. This needs to change, and it issues in a change of life. You see, either in our lives we're moving toward sin or we're moving toward Jesus Christ. All of our lives have a trajectory to them. Either my face is turned toward Jesus, I am following him and turning my back on sin, or my face is turned toward sin and my back is turned toward Jesus. One of the greatest storylines in all the Bible is repent. The Old Testament prophets over and over and over again preached repentance. John the Baptist came before Jesus and he preached repent 
The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus came preaching repentance. So should we be surprised that when Peter is calling for a response, he was calling for the people to repent? I know we live in a culture where we don't hear much about repentance. We live in a culture of tolerance and diversity. Pastor R, you can't tell somebody they're wrong because that's intolerant. You are rejecting their diversity. I want to say that God is very tolerant. God puts up with a lot. He is patient with us. And God loves diversity. He welcomes people from every language, every nation, every tribe, every background, every gender, every sexual orientation, every socioeconomic group, every education. He invites them all to repent. It is very loving of God to call us to repentance because people living in sin are living in slavery. Sin enslaves a person's life. Jesus Christ sets a person free. People living in sin are hiding from God. People living in sin are covering up their sin. So the most loving thing I could ever say to you is to repent. You see, we're living in this culture where we believe that sin is normal. So I've got a question. Is God okay with everything? Let me ask again. Maybe you don't understand the question. Is God okay with everything? He says, put to death sexual immorality. He says, put to death impurity. He says, die to your anger and malice and clamor and strife. He says, put to death your pride. You see, God wants us truly to practice repentance in our lives. So let me ask you a question as we start. It's kind of a heavy question. What is God asking you to repent of? You see, repentance has to do with an understanding in my mind that I have transgressed against God. I have sinned against a holy God. And then it has something to do with my heart, regretting sin, turning from sin, having a desire to please God. But then it has an issue of the will. I'm going to change directions now. I'm going to stop doing what I've been doing, and I'm going to change directions and follow after Jesus Christ. Repentance, then, is a gift from God. God grants to us repentance, and he commands all people everywhere to repent. Secondly, in this amazing sermon, Peter calls for people to be baptized, to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. What comes after repentance is to be baptized. Those who receive the word, it says, were baptized in Jesus' name. Now, there is an inward working of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is drawing us to Jesus, convicting us of our sin. And when we believe in the name of Jesus, for by one Spirit we are baptized into Christ's body. John predicted that Jesus would baptize by the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
So there's an outward testimony, which you have seen, this picture of an inward work of the Spirit. Baptism means immersion. John the Baptist baptized in the river where there was much water. So baptism really is for believers. So let me ask you this question. It's kind of a trick question, but you can answer anyway. How many of you were baptized as an infant? Okay. The truth is, none of you were baptized as an infant. You see, baptism is for believers. When you were baptized as an infant, that was an expression of your parents' faith. They wanted you included in the church. But if you trace baptism in the New Testament, baptism is for believers. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch? He was traveling along, reading through the Scriptures. Philip explained it to him. He believed, and there he saw the water, right? He saw the water, and he says, "'What forbids me from being baptized?' And Philip couldn't think of anything, so he baptized him in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Paul was in the house of the Philippian jailer. He had asked him the question, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the Philippian jailer cleaned him up, washed away his wounds, and then he baptized him in the name of Jesus Christ. You see, in ancient Greek literature... Baptism referred to a ship that had sunk. The ship was being baptized. So this morning, if you went to Dunkin' Donuts and you bought for yourself a coffee and a donut, and you took your donut and you immersed your donut into your coffee, you literally were baptizing your donut in the coffee. You were immersing it, you see? And you could have immersed it in the name of the Father. And no, (laughs) Jesus said, make disciples of all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. You see, a step of obedience for a believer is a step into baptism. People will say, some people will say, that baptism is necessary for a person to be saved. If it were necessary for a person to be saved, then when Jesus was being crucified on the cross and the thief turned toward him, he would have said, you must, you know, you must be baptized. He would have come down from the cross and baptized the man. But he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. You see, what happened on the cross was that thief believed, didn't have quite time to be baptized. You see, baptism is a statement that now I belong to Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the Lord of my life. He is the ruler over all. He is the ruler over me. And that Jesus is my Messiah, my King. It's a symbol because when you're being baptized, you're being identified with Jesus. Just like when we're baptized, we're baptized into his death, that just as we were baptized into his death, that as God raised Jesus up from the dead, the glory of the Father, to a new life, when we're being baptized, we're saying, I'm dying to sin. I'm dying to my old life. I'm coming out of the grave, and I'm going to live my life in the new power of the Holy Spirit in newness of life. You see, baptism is a powerful testimony to an inward work of the Holy Spirit. So what happened was all those who are being called by God All those who were far from God, now hearing the gospel, 3,000 were believing that day. Can you imagine 
3,000 believers, 3,000 baptisms in one day. You say, how did it happen? Well, I believe the apostles kind of spread out all over the city. There's lots of fountains and ponds around Jerusalem. And they were baptizing these brand new believers in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit to identify them with Jesus Christ. And then what happened to them? Was their conversion and baptism sort of the end of the road, or was there another step for them to take? If you look at your Bible in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, we'll find what happened in their lives that can happen also in our lives, sort of the next steps after baptism. We find that it says they devoted themselves. Now, to devote yourself is to have a habitual, consistent pattern of your life. If you're devoted to a sport, for instance, you have a consistent, habitual pattern of doing your sport. And so what happened in the lives of these new believers was they developed a new pattern for their life. And there were four characteristics of their new life of being a follower of Jesus. The first of them was they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They became students of the Word of God. I have never seen a person grow in their spiritual life without them becoming a student of God's Word. He is saying they began to um, read and understand the Word of God. It was Moses who read the Word of God to the people of God. It was Joshua who said, Do not let the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night, and be careful to obey it, that you may be prosperous and find good success. The kings over Israel were instructed to have a copy of the law beside them and to read it every day of their life. It was the Ethiopian eunuch who, after hearing the Word of God, chose to follow Jesus and be baptized. Jesus said that studying the Bible is the best way to stay connected to Him. And so there are three spiritual disciplines as it pertains to the Word of God that I really want you to practice. The first of them is the reading of the Word. The statistics are very clear that only about 14% of believers in this country daily read the Word of God. Now, how many times a day do you eat? Some of you say six or seven times. You nourish your body, right? Your body gets depleted. You need to replenish yourself. Well, the Word of God is necessary for your spiritual health, your spiritual growth. Scripture says that the lifeblood of the church where people are equipped, where people are trained, where people are empowered is through the Word of God. You see, all Scripture is inspired, and all Scripture is profitable for teaching, correction, instruction, training in righteousness, that the man of God, the woman of God may be equipped for every good work. You need to study the Word. You need to be in the Word. The first glance of your heart should be to the Word of God. Secondly, you need to be memorizing the Word. I know of two women that are meeting together consistently, 
And one of the things they're doing is they are memorizing the Word of God together. You see, when we begin to memorize the Word, the Holy Spirit now has access to the Word we have planted in our hearts. It means to reflect upon, to meditate on, to chew on throughout the course of the day. But the third discipline is something very seldomly practiced, but very power powerful in the life of a believer. It is reflection. It is asking the question, what does this mean? And how is this speaking to me? And what is God revealing to himself about himself? And what am I to do in response to this? You see, the early church was characterized by their devotion to the Word of God. Secondly, they were devoted to fellowship. Fellowship means the shared life. It means to live life in community with one another. They did not try to forge their Christian lives by themselves. They saw themselves in relationships to other brothers and believe other brothers and sisters. They continually gathered at their tables, eating their bread, breaking bread together, right? Fellowshipping with one another. One of the great needs in your life is to have fellowship, to have someone to share life with because it's in fellowship that we support each other through the travails of life. It's in fellowship that we encourage each other, breathing courage into each other's life. It's in fellowship that we sharpen one another because we become dull and we need to be sharpened. You see, it's in fellowship we get a chance to practice the one another's in scriptures, like accept one another, bear one another's burdens, confess your sins one to another. You see, fellowship is altogether important. And so we have within our church small groups. We believe that church happens in rows like this, but church also happens in circles where people gather for fellowship. And discipleship best happens in community with one another. We can share the word in each other's life. And so they devoted themselves to fellowship. And the third thing they devoted themselves to was the breaking of bread. Now, we know that they gathered in each other's homes, breaking bread with glad and sincere hearts. So what happened was they would have a loaf of bread. It was their daily meal. And oftentimes the loaf was crossed before it was broken. And then they would partake of the bread. But there came a point in the partaking of their daily bread when they would take an element of that bread, a part of that bread, and they would remember, remember the broken body of Jesus Christ. You see, this was normal in Christian fellowship, to break bread with one another and partake of that bread and remember the body that was broken for us. And then they would take their cup, the wine, and they would remember the blood that was shed for them. In the course of their fellowship, they would break bread and drink the cup, rem remembering the Lord's death. But then there was one last piece, and we talked about it last week. The church was devoted to prayer. The church knew how to pray. They knew that prayer was their communion with God. It was in prayer that they would invite Jesus to come. They would pray, Lord, come. Come into this moment. Come fill this assembly. You know, where two or three gather in his name, there he is in the midst of them. They, they knew how to pray. I was thinking about a verse this week. 
It's found in Psalm 27, verse 4. It says, One thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to gaze upon his beauty and to seek him in his temple. You see, when Jesus was with his disciples, they began following him around. <laughs> and he looked back over his shoulder and he said to them, what do you seek? Now that is a great question to ask. What is it that you are seeking after? What are you pursuing? What is sort of like occupying your attention? You say, Pastor R, when I listen to the news, I get pretty stressed and distressed because I'm trying to seek staying up with the world, right? Or I could say I'm seeking after a career. I'm seeking after a, a way of providing for my family so that there's a roof over our heads and a food to eat on the table. What is it that you are seeking after? You see, what they learned in the early church was to seek after the very heart of God, to seek His face, to be in His presence, because they knew they were broken and they were asking God to restore them and to heal them, to visit them. And what's happening across this land is there's a movement of God's Spirit to pray. Can you imagine if this house were a house of prayer where people could come into this house with heavy burdens on their back and come into the presence of God and begin to release those heavy burdens to find the peace that only He could give to us to become a place of prayer. See, we've come to this place all carrying something. We all have a burden on our back. We all have things that keep us up at night and wake us up early in the morning. We all have stress in our life. But it's only through prayer that we experience this communion with God. My soul finds rest in Him alone. So I'd like you now to close your eyes. Just trust me. I'd like you just to begin breathing. Just notice your breathing just for a moment. And allow your breaths to become a little deeper, a little longer. Just begin to breathe. Father, here we are in your presence. And we ask that our heart's gaze, our mind's gaze, might be on the person of Jesus Christ. There he is on his throne, high and exalted, lifted up. He is seated because his work is completed. Allow yourself to feel the presence of God. Allow yourself to know that you are in his presence. You're in his throne room. And you say like the psalmist, one thing I seek, one thing I ask for, that I may dwell in the presence of the Lord and to gaze upon his face and to see the beauty of the Lord. Father, in this place of rest, we ask for you to remove all the distractions that we can fix our eyes upon Jesus. 
We ask you, Lord, to allow us to drop the burdens at the feet of Jesus. We come into your presence and we ask, Lord, what would you speak to your church? What would you speak to us this morning? And Jesus is speaking to you a word of peace. He's saying, peace be unto you. The shalom life of God be unto you in richest measure. We now take our hands and we lay them in our laps and we open our hands to Jesus and say, Jesus, we receive from you your peace. We receive from you this shalom, this wholeness, this restoration, this healing. We acknowledge that we are broken. We repent, Lord, of everything else that has driven our lives, our self-will, our self-ambition, our pride. And we long to see your face, to see your smile, and to hear your voice. God, quiet our hearts, still our racing hearts. Remind us that you are God, to be still and know that you are God. And my prayer, Lord, is that you would grant to each one of us your rest, your Sabbath rest, that on this day set aside for public worship, you might meet us, each one where we are, and that you might grant to us peace, a peace that passes human understanding as we surrender our problems and our burdens and our distractions to you. Lord, meet with us and grant us your peace. Teach us what it means to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to ever be in a learning posture, ever growing in our understanding of who you are and who we are. Grant us, Lord, to be devoted to fellowship, to find people to do community with in relational environments, intentional leaders. Father, enable us to be involved in fellowship. Grant us, Lord, to be in communion with you, to know the power of your broken body and your shed blood. And Lord, teach us how to pray. Teach us how to come before you, Lord, for you to quiet us, for you to fill us, for you to restore us. This is our prayer, we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Because we are so devoted to the apostles' teaching, next week what we're going to do is we're going to walk you through the thread line of the entire Bible. And so I've got a little assignment for you. I want you this week to read through 1 Samuel chapter 17. You'll find it's a famous story you might already know. And ask yourself the question, what are the giants that I am facing in my life right now? Got it? 1 Samuel 17. We're also going to pop up some questions to you through the week. And we want you to engage in this study of the Scripture. We want you to engage in fellowship. We want you to experience communion, not only here, but also throughout the course of the week. And we want you to learn the life of being devoted to prayer. God bless you all.